From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, talking about two interesting rulings. They have both come from the Civil Resolution Tribunal in BC, and they have to do with employees quitting. And if you quit without giving required notice, well, Dan Balcaron is joining me once again, Vancouver employment lawyer and senior associate. Dan, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, the, the, these cases kind of got my attention because I've always thought that even though you're supposed to give a couple of weeks notice and that's the courteous thing to do, people could just get up and walk out, quit on the spot. But are there actual rules when it comes to that? Well, so first of all, I think the, the, uh, the story that covered these cases uh, really hit all the important points. There must be a breach of contract in order for any sort of liability to be found on the part of the employee. And so if there is no contract, there, 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 there won't be a breach because there's no contractual term that says that the employee had to provide resignation notice. But quite often, employment contracts do have clauses that say the employee must provide a month's notice or two weeks' notice or whatever is agreed upon. And if the employee breaches that, you know, in theory, that employee has, in fact, committed a breach of contract. But as with all things in law... You have to ask the question, what is the harm? What actual loss did the employer suffer? And replacement hiring costs aren't sufficient to, to make out actual harm. Inconvenience to the employer isn't sufficient to make out actual harm. There has to be evidence of a definitive loss, such as losing a client. And so because of that, and, and losing a client because of the lack of notice, right? Like if, if a specific employee is departing anyway, but didn't give the two weeks notice, you know, can you really say those two weeks would have made all the difference for that client? And so because of that, it's, it's almost impossible for the employer to prove harm. And so if there is going to be liability for employees for not giving sufficient notice, it's going to be at the higher echelon of income earners. It's going to be C-suite executives. That's where I could see these types of or vice presidents, that kind of thing, where I could see maybe evidence of specific harm but when you're talking about rank-and-file employees, almost no chance of, of uh, an employee being liable uh, for not giving sufficient notice. And, and I would just say generally, the court isn't in the business of commercially criminalizing employment. It's a very slippery slope if you start doing that. I don't think the courts want to disincentivize employment or employment mobility. There would have to be, to see a rank-and-file employee uh, found liable for specific losses. There obviously have to be specific losses, as I just said. Uh, and I, I would imagine it would have to be paired with some sort of problematic conduct on the part of the employee. So generally speaking, I think these are incredibly rare and would have to be confined almost always uh, because of the requirement to prove harm to em- employees in the upper echelon of, of earnings. So is it surprising that the employers in these cases, and, and again, these are two separate cases that, that took issue with the employees quitting. Uh, the, the one that involved an insurance agency, it was one of the brokers that the company said they quit with no notice and again went after the person, I think it was for about $3,000, saying that it, that the abrupt quitting cost the, the company the money. But it doesn't seem like, it almost seems, doesn't it, that going, taking it to the BC, the Civil Resolution Tribunal, uh, would be more work than, than it's worth if you're going after $3,000. Well, 
Yeah, I, I think you called it exactly correctly. I, I think that the only time you're, you're not going to see this with bigger employers. This is going to be, generally speaking, smaller employers, closely held corporations where emotions might play a bigger role than actual dollars and cents, where the employer is aggrieved that this occurred and wants to, I'm not going to say punish the employee, but, um, you know, exercise deterrence uh, and, and try to, I think, satisfy its, the employer's emotional concern about the situation rather than looking at it as to what's best for, for the dollars and cents for the employer. Generally speaking, now, I mean, that's a big generalization, but I, I've, I would be surprised to see this with a bigger employer, you know, 100 plus employer, employees um, and a rank and file employee. Uh, the other case as well, it wasn't even an employee that quit on the spot. It was somebody that gave two weeks notice instead of three. And again, the company went after for even a smaller amount. It was about $2,400 in damages. Uh, is that a warning to, to employees that make sure that, because my, my guess is that that employee, she probably thought that two weeks notice was fine. Maybe she didn't realize that the company rule was three weeks. But, but I mean, to avoid that, a headache of having to even go through this? Is it one of those cases of make sure you've read the fine print or you know what the rules are? Yeah, I certainly would do that. And I would consider, listen, these, these are incredibly, incredibly rare. You know, I haven't seen one of these come along in, in quite some time. And then we got two at once and the, the money was small. But if, if you get sued as a, a, you know, a regular worker, that can be very, very scary. And so, you know, yes, I, I would encourage you to, to, review your your employment contract and if you're going to give a notice if you can comply with the notice obligations you know you should do that but if if you need to take a tactical risk for whatever reason and not it's it's highly unlikely that this kind of thing will happen i, I will say you know almost no chance for that employer in that second case where three weeks notice was the claw the requirement but the employee still provided two and just failed to provide the third week probably not an error of commission, but an error of omission, an error of, of, of you know, it was an accident, thought that the uh, employee was, pro- the employee thought they were providing sufficient notice. I, I don't know, but I, I assume that, that you're correct in saying that, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, I'm not going to say it strays into the realm of petty, but it, it, it to your point earlier, uh, you know, is it worth it for the employer at that point? Uh, given how small an amount of money we'd really be talking about there. So any surprise then that in both of these cases, and again, not connected cases, but in both cases, the tribunal found that there was really no evidence that th- that these employees leaving had caused the company's harm. In one case, it even said, well, the company accepted the resignation. So even if there was a breach, that's showing that you've accepted that. So any surprises there that the tribunal found in, in, in favor, basically, of the employees? Uh, no, not at all. I, I and I hadn't seen that before, where where the tribunal found that there was an acceptance of the breach by accepting resignation. I don't know quite how that works because if an employee hands an employer a resignation, has the employer accepted it just by by having that resignation on their desk? Um, but no, and I think that just really goes to my broader point that the com- the court isn't in the business of commercially criminalizing employment. If you're going to have a situation where the courts find that that an employee is liable for not providing notice it's, it's going to have to be very uh, there has to be a particularized specific tangible loss uh and I'd, I'd imagine it probably have to be uh paired with problematic conduct on the part of the employee and and almost always would be confined to upper echelon employees so 
you know, the, the broad strokes takeaway for your listeners would be if you're, if you're uh, just a general employee and not in the C-suite, this is probably not a risk you have to worry about. But an employer can still make it difficult for you by bringing an action against you in court, even though it's incredibly rare. And so if you have the ability to comply with uh, the notice provisions, the resignation provisions of your employment contract, you should probably endeavor to do so. Very good advice. Dan, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Appreciate it. You're totally welcome. Thanks for having me again. Well, it is Wednesday afternoon and a good day, it seems like, to book travel, maybe if you like a sunny destination. So what better time than now to check in with Claire Newell, president and founder of Travel Best Bets. Claire, great to chat with you once again. Good afternoon, Jill. Lots of travel stories this week. Holy cow, I don't even know where to start. I'm going to let you tell me what you want to talk about first. Yeah, no shortage of travel news. Well, let's start with something Air Canada announced, and we have talked about this a lot on the show, taking steps to make things better with people who have disabilities, some that you might see, some that you might not be able to see. Yeah, so this is a really great news story. Um, It is for those who have non-visible disabilities, so something like autism. And Air Canada came out just yesterday saying that they're going to be the first airline in North America to adopt the Hidden Disability Sunflower Program, and it's to serve that particular type of customer. And the Hidden Disabilities Sunflower Program, it's globally recognized. And what I like about this is that you'll be able to choose to go pick up a sunflower lanyard at the check-in counter and that's just going to indicate to airline staff that you might require a little bit of extra assistance um, that you'd like to speak with them about what your specific needs might be you might need more time traveling you could just be a really fearful flyer and that uh, lanyard is going to be available at ticket counters and it's going to be for all flights that are operated by Air Canada so including Air Canada Rouge and Air Canada Express so this is something that um you are facing uh, or someone you love is facing, please let them know that this is now an option. All right. Good. Uh, a good news story coming out from Air Canada. This is also a pretty good news story. If you like to sleep while flying in Air New Zealand, uh, what is the Sky Nest? Okay. So I'm, Air New Zealand always has these really cool different things. Um, the last thing that they came out with was uh, three economy seats. So if you booked economy seats and the three of them, you could actually create it into a bed. Well, now they're going a step further and they're launching something that's ca- coming out later this year for their long haul flights. And they do have a long haul flight between Vancouver and Auckland. So I would expect that it will be on this. Basically, it's six sleeping pods per aircraft that these will be on board. And it offers economy class passengers the ability to go and experience these bunk beds in the sky. And you pay a little bit extra, and it's four-hour block. So you, you know that you can actually lay down and get a comfortable sleep. You'll get the linens. You'll get amenities like earplugs. There's reading lights in the in the bunk bed area. There's um, USB charging pods. And so it's a fee of anywhere between like $335 and $495, depending on the flight. Um, but look for that. That's going to be starting probably in September. Interesting. So a bit of a different take on, say, flying business class. But can you imagine, though, you get the four hour block and then somebody wakes you up and says, OK, back to the back of the plane now. Off you go. I know. <laughs> no. I know, but I would just be, I'd be so grateful. I know that there's times and there, I know some people who have such a hard time sleeping in the upright position, even if they've got comfortable neck pillows and they've got their eye mask and they've, 
you know, they, they tried everything. This just might tip them over. And I know people who would pay, like, mm-hmm. you know, if it's just shy of $100 an hour to even get two or three hours sleep to, to like, and a good sleep. So yeah. they, they did some, some uh, research on it, and they said that an hour and a half is, like, great. So within that four hours, if you've got an hour and a half, it really makes you feel better when you land. All right. That's uh, very interesting. Uh, United mm-hmm. is, is planning some significant expansion, and uh, that's going to include a lot of Canadian cities. It is. Um, United has said that they're doing a massive Canadian expansion, and uh, during the particularly the summer month, there'll be nine Canadian cities that will be serviced with more than 150 uh, flights per day between the U.S. and Canada. One of the um, things that they're going to be doing is resuming some flights that have been basically kiwashed since COVID. Some of those will be Halifax, Newark, um, Winnipeg, Denver. But from Vancouver, they're also, they will be uh, resuming their Vancouver to Washington, D.C., I'm actually going to Washington, D.C. this year, so um, that might be something that I look at. But they'll be flying uh, larger planes on routes that need it, and also more flights will be added to the popular destinations, especially Toronto, um, Calgary, and Ottawa. So something to look forward to, a little bit more option. And for those who are like me, Aeroplan members, this is good news because they have a co-chair agreement with Air Canada. All right, that uh, is United. I know people are wondering as well, Flair Airlines has been in the news this week about unpaid taxes. So I, I'm sure yeah. you're getting questions about this uh, as well. What is happening here? Yeah, I'm getting lots of questions from um, agents and, and from clients alike. And I think the, the headline scared a lot of people that they owe more than $67 million in unpaid taxes. I will say this, that Flair came out this morning and said that the government is actually not seizing the Flair property in the situation, doesn't impact their daily operations. They're going to continue to fly and look forward to serving people now and in the future. Um, but the reports earlier this week basically said that Flair owes this money. It's all due to import duties on 20 Boeing 737 MAX jetliners that make up the majority of their fleet, actually. Um, but they have worked out a mutually agreed upon payment plan with CRA, and they are current with that. So the very, very last resort would be that the, the government actually seizes that property. And it would be if they, if they weren't making those payments. So they are, they are going to slow down expansion. And it's because of a shortage of Boeing planes, but also ongoing debt issue um, that they have with this. But they, they're not going away. I, I do say this, though, so Jill, there's a lot of players in the domestic market at the moment. Um, I have read lots of headlines and lots of news from the travel trade and travel experts saying that, that maybe not enough room for everybody. So it's a reminder, no matter who you're booking with, just get travel insurance that covers you if something goes sideways with your airline. All right. So if people are hearing this, and I'm sure you're getting the question, too, that have yeah. flights booked on Flair, what, what are you telling them? I'm telling them to make sure that they just have travel insurance that covers them for that investment if something does happen with the airline. I'm not saying that anything is going to. I'm just saying that uh, why take a risk? And insurance is um, small in the scheme of it. Um, but I just want to calm the the minds of people who maybe have some uh, a really – because there's a lot of great deals in the marketplace with Flair. They have a lot of aircraft. And, you know, they're, they're not going to be seized. This, they, they got this um, – this order back in November and they've worked it out with the government. So just everyone can be calm. 
Continuing now talking uh, travel news with Travel Best Bets President Claire Newell. And uh, Claire, we talked about this actually a couple of days ago because I know a lot of people are concerned about this particularly pungent seaweed that we're already seeing on some beaches in Florida. And the prediction that because it is so abundant this year, it is going to start washing up on beaches and beaches that are very popular with tourists. So what are you seeing and hearing about this? Yeah, they're they're looking at this. This is actually, um, it came out, the University of Southern Florida actually discovered that there's this mass of sargasm in the Atlantic Ocean that's five times larger than it was this time last year, and that it um, will arrive into Florida maybe as early as February. Some parts have actually seen some of it. Mexico would be April, May, which is good news because the vast majority of uh, people like to go over the winter months between November and kind of the the tail end of April before those planes start to go to the places in Europe. But um, this is just a reminder to people that there is always seaweed, you know, but um, sometimes there can be more than others on certain er area in certain areas. So I always tell people if you're going to a hotel, whether it's in Mexico, the Caribbean, Florida, you might want to just go do a Google search. You might even want to call the hotel in question or email them and just find out if they are affected because there's nothing worse than a beach walk with a massive stinky rotting seaweed to ruin that, that experience. So just something to keep in mind. It's always a concern. Our agents are always familiar with this, but this year it's worse than, than it has been in the past. Yeah, not the nicest thing for a beach walk, for sure. Uh, no. <laughs> you mentioned uh, when some of the planes start going and being shifted to the Europe the European routes and Spain. Certainly the temperatures in Spain have been, uh, there have been heat waves. So are people changing kind yeah. of the times when they go to Europe now? Yeah, and I've been encouraging people to change the times because, you know, July and August is nasty in, in Europe. It's hot, it's crowded, it's expensive. Um, so my favorite times to go are, are April, maybe May. And as you know, I did Ireland this past year, and I chose to go very tail end of September into October. We had great weather. Crowds are gone. Um, but it's been very interesting because just this past week in Spain, there, there, were, there were parts of Spain and southern Spain, and this would go into Portugal as well, that were reporting 29 degrees Celsius. And so it's um, always of around kind of 17 to 20, so it's a nice time right now. But it's been unseasonably hot where people have gone to the beaches or sunbathing for a winter swim, which is so, so unique. Um, but just to give you a perspective, last year in April, you won't maybe remember this, but I was mentioning to you that it was 35 degrees in April. Mm -hmm. So I really do encourage people to consider going in the shoulder season, not only to save some money, you're going to have good weather, um, but you are going to pay less and you're going to avoid a lot of the crowds. I, I went, uh, I was in Spain in September and it was absolutely beautiful. It was, it was still warm, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, horribly hot and not crowded. Like you say, it's not, not everybody has shifted that yet. Yeah. And I know that a lot of people are pigeonholed. There may be teachers, they might have kids that are in school and they want to do these trips in July and August. Let those ones go. But if you have the opportunity to go at different times, I would be highly, highly encourage you to do it. And uh, Claire, one other story before we get to the deals, and I love this one because you obviously work in the travel industry, but Forbes says, hey, this is a great place to work. Yeah, it's a, it was actually it's surprising that so many of the um, best Canada's best 
employers were actually in the travel-oriented space. And so I thought I would just highlight some of those. Um, the top Canadian was Marriott Canada. Um, they were number 46. Transport Canada, number 47. The Accor Hotel Group, which actually also owns um, brands that you would be familiar with, like Fairmont is part of that. They were number 77. Expedia Group was 88. Um, and Four Seasons Hotel, which is kind of a Canadian flagship, it was 138. There were others on there. Um, Air Canada was on the list. Porter Airlines was on the list. WestJet, Transat, Manulife Insurance, um, Best Western Canada, and Canadian Northern. So obviously a nice industry to work in. And you know what? It's been one of the last to come back after the pandemic. Still, there's shortages within the space. So if the travel industry is kind of, you know, kind of piqued your interest, might be interesting to go into the space. All right. That's uh, some good news. Definitely. Let's get to, to the deals. What ones do you have for us today? You know, what's been really popular have been Alaska cruises because the lead in rates are so low. So I'm just going to highlight one. This is a seven night Alaska cruise sailing round trip from Vancouver. And I think it's so nice because you're not going to an airport. You're just walking on and walking off a ship. This is May 1st and it's a seven night cruise with a 50 US dollar onboard credit. The base fare is less than the taxes. It's mm. $3.99, the taxes are $4.88. Um, still, a lot of people want the sunshine. So Los Cabos, Mexico, just before spring break, there's this window, March 3rd through until March 12th, where some dates are airfare and seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort, $9.99, taxes of $6.22. And then I just saw this um, 29-night, we're calling it a world cruise because it visits 10 countries, has dropped like by a thousand dollars so it's october the 23rd so you have some time to plan the 29 night cruise that sails from rome to singapore so it goes through the suez canal italy greece turkey jordan the uae oman india thailand malaysia singapore 2659 the taxes of 696 but remember that's all of your accommodation meals entertainment and you wake up and you're maybe in a different country so something to consider if you haven't seen that part those parts of the world uh on one fell swoop you're saving a lot on airfare because you're just flying to rome flying home from singapore hmm. that's uh, amazing what an itinerary yeah <laughs> yes all right and uh, i think we have time you have one more for us as well Okay, total bucket list. I mean, not that that last 29 that World Cruise wasn't a bucket list, but this is an African safari that um, includes the airfare and the tax. Now, the window that you can do this is April 2nd through until November 26th. So the cheapest date that I found for this package um, would be in the early, like when you're leaving earlier in April. But it's airfare, 11 nights, fully guided vacation. You're going into South Africa, so into Cape Town. Um, it includes accommodation, daily breakfast, sightseeing, the game drives in Kruger National Park. But then you also get to see Victoria Falls, which is so amazing. And it includes all those domestic flights. So um, uh, Cape Town, Johannesburg, uh, or sorry, Johannesburg, Cape Town, Cape Town, Victoria Falls, and the transfers, including tax, 46 and that's a really good deal because the airfare portion alone is really high to do that type of a trip. All right. Uh, some great, uh, great trips there and more on those uh, on the website. Claire, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, Dale. Have a great week.
We are taking a look at some numbers. These were released from Statistics Canada, taking a look at firearms and crime in Canada. And it's from 2022, but compares back, looks back to the rates of firearm-related crime since the numbers started being compiled back in 2009. So a general look at the numbers, according to Statistics Canada, says in 2022, slightly less than 3% of police-reported violent crime crime in Canada, or about 14,000 violent crimes involved a firearm, but saying that violent crimes per population of 100,000 people, there was an increase of about 8.9%. So an increase of about 9% from 2021, from the year previous. Joining me to talk a little bit more about these and some of the other numbers is Rod Giltaka, CEO and Executive Director at the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Rod, great to have you back on the show. Thank you, Joe. When you look at these numbers, and I know that there's been a lot of attention paid to the 9% increase. So according to Stats Canada, from 2001 to 2000, uh, sorry, 2021 to 2022, uh, a 9% increase in, in reported firearm-related violent crimes. How do you interpret or what do you take from that number? Well, I think the most important takeaway is that the number is continuing to go up. It's not going down. And we have... Uh, the Liberal NDP and Bloc Québécois coalition government uh, bragging about how uh, how great Canadians have it since they uh, became in charge, and uh, and they've also been crowing about uh, the greatest you know package of gun control uh, in the generation, and violent crime continues to increase. So I'm not sure I'm not sure what they they you know how they uh, define success, but uh, I hate to see what a failure looks like. It um, also takes a look at where uh, these crimes are, are happening the most. And I, I think not perhaps not a big surprise uh, to people that when you break it down, they're saying that it is mainly in the urban centres, uh, in Ontario, in BC, although Alberta also seeing an increase as well. What does that tell you as far as, I mean, it doesn't, you don't need a Statistics Canada report, I think, to often draw the connection to gang activity, to illegal guns, to uh, violent crimes involving guns. But is d- does that also kind of point to that, given that we're talking about the urban centres? Well, I think, I mean, what, what's really important in, in my mind is if you have violent crime happening, who, who is doing all the shooting? And police know. I mean, if you, if you sit down and you talk to any honest police chief or honest frontline police officer, they know the people that are perpetrating these crimes. So if you were at all honest about your, your concern for public safety, you would figure out where are the guns coming from that criminals are, are using who are these people that are doing all the shooting? Where are they? How can we get them off the street? And when we get them off the street, we won't let them out of jail because they're going to let bullets fly in, in crowded areas. And then you attack the problem. But what the liberals have done is the exact inverse of that. They've spent and committed, so spent already and committed to spending around $5 billion trying to destroy the sports shooting community and the rest of the firearms community in Canada, communities that have existed since before Canada was a country. And they sat back and watched all of this chaos and crime and violence and division happen. And I'm just, you know, for me, I'm just really curious, when is it that Canadians are going to, and I hate to say it because I'm not a big fan of hyperbole, but wake up, figure out what's going on, reject that kind of politics, 
and find a government and elect a government that is going to put the criminals in jail and leave the law-abiding Canadians alone because the, the evidence is in. You know, it's been eight and a half years. It's not like this is some legislation happened. And then six months later, you got the gun lobby screaming about how it didn't work. I mean, this is this is coming up on a decade. So, you know, if Canadians want more of what they're seeing now, keep electing the same people they're electing. If they want to change, they're going to have to change. Uh, you mentioned something there. You said about finding out where are the guns coming from. Has that changed as well? And again, these numbers, uh, these are looking from 2021 to 2022, which are the most recent numbers that Statistics Canada has. But uh, again, going back, they started keeping these numbers, tracking them from 2009. Has it changed as far as guns being smuggled over the border? Are drones playing a role in that? Where are they coming from? Well, that's an interesting topic because that's always a, um, um, a topic of controversy. Right. So the Liberals and the NDP and the Bloc, they want to insist that if if they ban guns from only like from exclusively licensed gun owners, that somehow that's going to have some effect on firearm related violence, that firearm related violence is going to go down. But then when we see when we when you really look at the sources of crime guns, um, whether they're coming from stolen guns or they're coming across the border or their straw purchase, which almost never happens. It happen, it's happened like literally a handful of times in the last 22 years. We've checked. We know this. If, if, you know, when you look at that and you look at things being uh, strengthened at the borders or border or whatever, and then you look at crime guns, um, more crime guns coming from across the border, even though you're trying to strengthen the border, it just proves, I think, pretty, pretty conclusively that criminals will find a way to get these firearms no matter what. If they can't get them across, smuggling them across in vehicles, then they'll put them on rail traffic. As we know, rail traffic, pretty much 0% of rail traffic is inspected. If they can't get them through on rail, then they'll fly them across the border on drones. If they can't get them, they'll, they'll manufacture them themselves illegally, which, they, with, which ghost guns have gone through the roof because they're always going to look for that path of least resistance. It's not people that have firearms licenses and go to gun clubs and store their uh, store and use their firearms responsibly. So this is the big bone we have to pick. If they're ignoring all of this because they're playing a political game with Canadians and people are paying with their lives for these games. Another set of numbers that were released in this I found interesting. And again, it talks about tracking it from 2013. So basically the last 10 years, almost 10 years, if we're looking at 2022 numbers. It says that that the in, the rate of firearm-related violent crime has risen for all types of weapons. It says the increase, and they're going by percentages, which I find doesn't really tell you a lot, because if you don't know the initial number, the percentage doesn't mean a whole lot. But saying that the increase for crimes involving handguns up 50%, rifles or shotguns up 45%. But then this number, it says for those involving fully automatic or sawed off firearms, the increase is 35%. But I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, have, have not those, haven't those, those uh, types of guns, have that, those not always been banned? So fully automatic firearms were banned in Canada in 1977. So it's been a long time. Um, you know, they, we, we haven't had any more coming to the country. The only people that have them are a handful of people that kept them under lock and key for the past uh, how many decades? and movie armorers, and of course, law enforcement. So full autos that, uh, that are showing up are either being illegally manufactured or they're being illegally imported, um, and probably not even from the United States because it's very difficult to get full autos legally in the United States as well. 
Um, when it comes to sawed-off firearms, this could be a bolt-action rifle that has the barrel and the, and the stock sawed off. And I mean, you know, you can get those. Guns are very durable, right? So it's not it's not unusual for someone to get become an illegal possession of a of an old bolt-action rifle that's a hundred years old. Um, so that could account for those too. But the, the handguns to me are very interesting. I mean, the Liberals banned handguns. No new handguns have been imported for the past over about a year and a half. So. I guess that didn't make a difference either. One of the other categories as well, it says in the category of firearm-like weapon or unknown type of firearm, that has seen actually the largest increase in violent crime, up 76%. Again, it's not saying what the original number was, so 76% sounds huge, but it might not actually be huge. But are they talking about, is that, do you think, the way their, their way of, of talking about uh, 3D printed guns, or what are they putting in that the category of firearm-like weapon or unknown type of firearm? I'm not, well, unknown might be they weren't able to recover the gun. I, and I'm only guessing here. Um, but firearm-like weapon, I don't know, maybe a crossbow or something. It's, it's hard to, uh, or a modified airsoft. Or I, don't, I, I don't really know. But um, it, I think when you, when you look at something like unknown firearm of an unknown type, the, the number of incidents of those are probably very low. So to get a 70% increase, you know, if it, you know, if, if you had uh, two incidents and now you had four this year, that's a hundred percent increase, right? So mm-hmm. when you're talking about uh, about percentage increases, those are really difficult when you're dealing with small numbers. So uh, just to be just to be fair to both sides of the conversation, right? Um, and Rod, something you mentioned as well about the people who are behind the violent crimes and the people who are doing this, and I know. Uh, that you teach the the class or or you have taught the class for people getting their gun licenses in this province. And I know that you teach that if you break these rules, if you have a a, a certain type of gun in your car or your vehicle and you don't go straight to the gun range and back or you, you, you venture out, if you don't follow these rules, you are looking at jail time. Do you still teach that though? Because it seems like in a lot of these cases, even the criminals being caught in these, these violent crimes, they're not going to jail. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's pretty interesting. It, it seems like if you're a licensed gun owner and you run afoul of the law in, it, um, in an administrative capacity, not even a, you know, using, misusing your firearm, uh, the full weight of, of the law uh, comes down on you. But, um, I mean, we've seen time and time again, it's a, big, it's a big issue in Canada is bail reform. You have people literally shooting and killing police officers with an illegal gun, having a, a long criminal record. And that person is out on bail until trial. And, and that person reoffends. We know how many people reoffend in Canada. And we know what a huge problem it is. It's costing people their lives. And it doesn't seem to be a problem for the Liberals. And, and you know, I, 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 it's very difficult to try to steer away in this, in this debate from hyperbole or conspiracy, you know, seeing conspiracies everywhere. But you really have to wonder what the Liberals really want when they spend all of their time chasing sports shooters and hunters and farmers and people at gun clubs around and spending billions of dollars to get their guns. And yet they allow this stuff to happen, this, this chaos and the crime and the division and the violence. You got to wonder what their, what their goals are. And I true. And I, I, I mean that sincerely, I truly wonder sometimes. All right. Well, Rod, we will leave it there for today, but thank you so much as always for coming on the show. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Joe. 
Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.